The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title of our Bible study tonight is Turned Away. Yes, we'll be in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And then we're not going to pick up again in the Gospel of Mark until after the New Year. Uh, So we'll have worship night next week, and then we'll have the Christmas sing-along. And then I'll do a standalone Bible study, and then we'll move into the end of the year. The last, last week of the, the year, we won't gather. The church offices are closed, but then we'll see you after the new year. I feel like I have all my, my work done. It started early. This morning, I, or, I, I feel so proud of myself. I'm going to tell you. I ordered my tamales this morning uh, from a store in Escondido. And, and uh, it, was, it just felt so good to get that done already. I mean, I'm not that kind of guy, but felt extra, extra special to be, to be ready to go. Uh, well, let's go ahead and read. I'm going to read the first six verses, and then we'll pray and we'll consider God's Word tonight. The title in my book, my Bible here, for this section, says, Jesus Rejected at Nazareth. It says, and he went away from there. Now, the there is Capernaum. That's where he's been. That is his, his, his base of operation through the Galilee ministry. And, and that's coming to an end. You know, he's moving in quite a bit now into the three years that he did ministry. So, so that's coming to an end. There's, there's some significance here in chapter 6. Obviously, the gospel wasn't written with chapter markings and verse markings. That's for our benefit. But it says that he went away from there and he came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, there's a series of questions here, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works, that would speak to the miracles, how are such mighty works done by his hands? And this is something they would have heard of uh, from others. Then again in verse 13, is, this, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, or he replied, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives, and in his, household, his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And verse 6 is where we conclude. And he, Jesus, marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. It won't be till after the new year that we see that he, that he selects his apostles, but join me in a word of prayer. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray for your spirit to bring truth Uh, to our hearts and our minds. Uh, We are in the midst of the holidays, and Maranatha Chapel has a lot going on, especially as we head towards uh, the time that we remember the birth of Christ, the incarnation, Jesus coming into our world, and yet being this very vulnerable child. So, Lord, help us draw close to Jesus this, this Christmas season. Help us remember all that Jesus did and all that took place. And Lord, we pray for our church. This is a time of the year where people will come to visit, uh, either out of tradition or by invitation. Lord, help us remember that that the guests that are with us are that, guests in our home. And 
And Lord, help us allow us to make them feel welcomed and warmed by your love. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said in my introduction, Capernaum is where Jesus' home base was. It was and is the ruins there, are a small fishing village right on the Sea of Galilee. And I've been there multiple times, and, 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 and you have the synagogue, at least the, the ruins or the biblical site, as we call it, uh, uh, not too far. You could walk down to the water, and you look to the south, and you can see everything. It, it's, it's, it's not a, a massive area, and there are hills all around. And so Jesus is now moving away from his home base, and, and he returns home. He goes home. From time to time, I go home to Vista. And I don't have to go very far. And uh, there's a nice little restaurant downtown, the same streets uh, me and my friends used to hang out on, where I, I can take an appointment or meet with friends. It's centrally located for some of us, and it's called Curbside Cafe. I know I've only been up here five minutes, so I'm already talking about food in multiple different ways, but it's because food is so near and dear to my heart. I want you to know something about Nazareth, that, that today our church has a relationship with, a, with an Arab church in Nazareth. And when we go there, we visit with them. And, and these are people that have come here and have, have stayed in my home. Some of them have. And we've gone there and we've spent time with them. But the biggest exchange that we've had with uh, this church, with this school, Nazareth Baptist School, is our children. Their children have come and spent time with us, and we've gone, and our children have gone and spent time with them, students. This is where Jesus grew up. I don't know if you grew up in a small town. Uh, my daughters grew up in Fallbrook, and all I ever heard was, there's nothing to do. There's nothing to do in Fallbrook. And, and, and when I get older, I'm going to move away. And you know, it's so strange now that they're older, they talk warmly about Fallbrook. Like, it was a great place to grow up. And, and we, went, you know, we knew all the kids in school. It's funny how things change in time. As we consider our text tonight, I want you to know that Jesus' family, his mother and his, his family, still live here. That's c- considered in the text. And although I studied numerous commentaries on this, there's, there are differing opinions as to how many people li- lived here at the time. Some say as little as 100, others say maybe 500. But it's, I guess the idea about knowing how many people lived here is because you knew everybody which can, as you, some of you know, can be good and cannot be so good also. Would you, would you stop and consider that the, for 30 years, Jesus, the most part of 30 years, Jesus lived in Nazareth? And I think one of the things that will rise to the surface as we consider this tonight is that he looked just like everybody else. He acted just like everybody else. He participated in the community just like everybody else. Like his father, he was a carpenter. That's what you did at that time. You took on the trade of your dad. Jesus' earliest connection to the town of Nazareth, really a village, is summed up in the words of Nathaniel found in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 46. I'm going to give you a number of scriptures. A lot of them come from John's Gospel. But Nathaniel said to Philip, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, this is interesting because later in John's Gospel, we find out that Nathanael came from Cana. Remember the, the wedding at Cana where Jesus turned the water into wine? And that's, that's very, very close to Nazareth. And so uh, Nathanael had an interesting perspective on that. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's not what you want to read in a Yelp review, is it? Not if you're with the Chamber of Commerce anyways. 
But then I like Philip's reply, and he simply turned to his friend and he said, come and see. Come and see. And that's what many of you have done. Somebody invited you to consider Jesus. They maybe shared with you their testimony, their story, and they invited you to come and see Jesus. And something very powerful happened from there. Even if you didn't immediately check Jesus out, even if you didn't immediately receive him, the invitation remains powerful. It's important to know that Jesus is called in John 1.45, chapter 1, verse 45, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. This is what he was known as. This was his identification with this small, obscure, unimportant town. Nathaniel's comments reflect skepticism that Messiah would come from such an insignificant place. As we get into our text tonight, it's very important for you to know that Jesus has been here before. Not only was he raised here, but he has come to visit before post-baptism, post-wilderness temptation. Uh, That he has been here before and that uh, he wasn't received well. And the only reason I bring that up is because I want you to see that he returns. He had been someplace, he had been rejected, and now he returns. And I think that what we catch a glimpse of here is God's relentless love being played out. And he continually returns to you and to me. I think from the book of Revelation, that picture of Jesus you know, knocking on the door, knocking on the door continually. This is how God's love plays out in Nazareth. Well, and Nathaniel eventually comes around in John 1.49, speaking to Jesus, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, a declaration of his deity. You are the King of Israel. You are Messiah. The village is also referenced at Jesus' death. It would be inscribed upon a placard that would have been put on the cross in John 19.19. 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And then lastly, at his resurrection. We see, we see this theme of Nazareth being connected to Jesus all throughout his ministry, uh, all throughout his life. But again, in Mark chapter 16, verse 6, And he, the angel, said to them, those who had come to the empty tomb, Again, at his resurrection, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Why, he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. I think initially, these people, these community knows Jesus well. We would say that in some ways today that he is a son of this community, is a part of this community, tight-knit. Like I said, everybody knows everybody's business. And initially, when he returned, the people were impressed with his teaching. Then in time, they would be impressed with his popularity. He, in a sense, is a representative of their community. But this is the problem. It was their familiarity with Jesus that tripped them up. That is, they they didn't have the respect that other communities, that other groups of people did. In their minds, he left as a carpenter and returned as a teacher. And in their minds, there was this disconnect. And I think that when we, uh, as the title infers, when they turn Jesus away, it's because they can't make this connection. On the screen, you'll see a quote 
um, a statement where it says, Jesus came to be Lord. Jesus came into this world. Jesus comes to you and to me to be our Lord, not to meet people's expectations. I think one of the things that, that's important to know is, is that a king is sovereign. Uh, if, if, if we were to have a king, it wouldn't be like a president. A king is sovereign. His decision is law. He might have advisors. He, he, he would be wise to have counsel and people to talk things through with. But when he makes his final decision, it's not voted upon. And in the kingdom of God, it's no different. Jesus is our Lord. He is our king. He is our sovereign. Our story teaches us that rejection sometimes comes with the Christian life. I don't know if those of you that are joining us online or in Solomon's Porch or those of you who are here in the sanctuary, but if you look back on your life, have you ever lost maybe a relationship because of your commitment to Christ? Maybe not your commitment to Christ, maybe a conviction that you have because of Christ, a relationship that changes or morphs over time. Sometimes in the Christian life, we lose relationship. We might experience rejection. Again, on the screen, listen to David's words from Psalm 27, verse 10. Even if my mother, my, even if my father and my mother abandon me, even if my father and my mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. And I think one of the reasons I bring that up is because when we do suffer or experience any level of rejection because of our commitment to Christ, he is the one who comforts us. He is our representative, our high priest, and he can do so because he has experienced that same rejection. It's important for you to know that his family's rejection was temporary. We know that his brother James would be, and from Acts chapter 15, his brother James would be a leader in the church at Jerusalem. In your New Testament, there's a book called James. That's his epistle. That is his letter. Also, his brother Jude would write the very, very small uh, letter of Jude. So let's begin here in verse 1, again, of Mark chapter 6. Rejection in Nazareth, verses 1 through 6. Verse 1, Jesus comes home. And he went away from there. We've already said that he went away from Capernaum, which is about 25 miles away from Nazareth. And he came, or he returned to his hometown. And his disciples were with him. The very fact that his disciples are accompanying him, or I think as the text says, are following him, means that Jesus is coming here. He's coming here to minister. He's, he's coming home for a purpose. He's coming home because he cares about the people of Nazareth. And even though, like I said, he's been rejected earlier, and we'll talk about that in a moment, it's important for him to return home. And I think one of the things that I would want you to know is that sometimes you have shared your faith with someone and you have felt like they have put you off. Oh, maybe they've been respectful. Uh, maybe they've kind of given you that, well, you believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe. Or, you know, that's good for you, but it's not really something that I can, you know, that I feel is for me. And you've, you've kind of felt that, you've, you've felt that, you know, being put off. And, and yet here Jesus remind, reminds us by his actions that he returns to where he's been rejected that he returns home. I think one of the other things that, 
that is important to know is that the disciples in the future will experience rejection, and he is bringing them to his home so that he can teach them uh, how to deal with it. The town of Nazareth knows that Jesus has declared himself to be Messiah. There's no ambiguity here. Again, this is not his first time coming home. Approximately a year earlier, in Nazareth's synagogue, he read from Isaiah 61. And I want to lift this passage from the Old Testament prophet, where it says, and again, chapter 61 of Isaiah, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is what he's reading from the scroll. This is what he's reading to his family and to his friends. The synagogue is packed. Everybody is present. They're watching him. And he reads this, this, this passage. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed Messiah, anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the, pri- of the prison to those who are bound. And then looking at Luke's gospel in chapter 20, it says, And then he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all that were in the synagogue were fixed on him, were staring at him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying to, to his family and friends, to those who knew him so well, that those who knew him from when he was young and now until he was a man, they knew everything about him. He was saying to them, today, in your presence, in my reading, this scripture that you have looked forward to, that you had hoped for for so long, is being fulfilled in your presence. It was a declaration of him being Messiah. And the people were not so happy with this. Again, Luke 4, verse 29 says, And they rose up and drove him out of town. And they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. One of the things that would happen, and this, again, is their response to Jesus' claim to being Messiah or, or, or the anointed one, is that they, they, would take, they would take an individual and they were going to execute him. They would tie his hands behind his back. They would bring him to a cliff. They would turn him around and then they would push him over so that he would land on his head. That's what they were attempting to do. But I didn't finish the passage there. It says in verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. That is, he walked through their way, walked away right through them. That is, Jesus' community tried to execute him because he claimed to be Messiah. Now, during his second visit, likely due to his popularity, that is, his growing popularity, and the news that he had been working miracles, delivering people from evil, Jesus is invited to teach again. So we have in verses 2 and 3, Jesus offends. And on the Sabbath, verse 2, And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Synagogue worship was central to Jewish life. I have this this little clay lamp, and I received it. Actually, I have a couple of them. I received it in Nazareth. 
There's a small village there that's a replica of first century Nazareth where they, you know, they, they show you various, uh, you know, like, you know, harvesting, planting uh, wheat and barley and harvesting and, you know, tending sheep and, and um, they have an olive press there. They have a lot of things out of the scriptures that you could see with your own eyes. And then when you leave, they give you this little, this little lamp. And I keep this in my office. You know, it, it reminds me of my friends that are there, but it also reminds me of the experience. We've taken, we've taken groups of high school students there, as I said earlier. And when you get done, they give you the lamp. And you go there a lot, you have a lot of lamps. Um, but, but, but in... In Nazareth Village, there's a synagogue. We typically go during the summer months, and it's hot, it's warm. And so because I've already seen all, you know, the students are being taken from one one site, part of the site, to another part of the site, I go to the synagogue. The door's always open. In the roof, there are openings, and there's a breeze that comes comes up up through the valley. And... um, it's a square building, and built into the wall are these, are these seats, these, these bench seats, you know, and, and again, it's square. It'd be, it would be used for community gatherings as well as worship, and, and you know, there they have the seat for the, the teacher, and then they have, a, you know, where the scrolls would be kept. And I go in there, and, and, and the pavement is cool. And you're inside, and there's a breeze coming in. And I would admit to you more than on one time I've fallen asleep, asleep there. It's so peaceful until the students arrive, and then, then they interrupt my nap. But think about this. Jesus comes into a synagogue that he had been raised in, that he had gone to worship in, that he had had a place to sit as one of the men of Nazareth. And he takes the seat of the teacher the attendant brings him a scroll, he opens it up, and he begins to teach. Church service would have went with first singing, and then established prayers, the reading of the scroll, the Old Testament, the Torah, the first one out of the first five books of the Bible, and then the prophets. And then there would have been instruction, which is why Jesus was there. And then after instruction, there would have been the priestly blessing people, again, of the community, this is their day to worship, this is their day to fellowship. Again, continuing in verse 2, it says, and many, all really means everybody was present who heard him were astonished. Everybody within the room that heard Jesus teach. And again, we're not told the content of his teaching, we're told the reaction to his teaching. And many who heard him were astonished. The word means shocked, sane. And there's a series of five different questions. The first question is this. Where did this man, not did, where did our community's son, not did, where Jesus, but where did this man, I want you to hear this. Where, where did this man get these things, these things that he's teaching? Second question. What is this wisdom given to him? What is this wisdom that he possesses? I think think inferred here is, where did he get this wisdom that we don't have? Where did he get this understanding that we don't have? 
Third question is how are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, I believe, too, this is a reference to his reputation that had grown of all the things that he had done that had come to Nazareth. So where did he get the ability to work, to work these mighty miracles? Fourth, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? That is, isn't his family here? We know them. And then lastly, the fifth question, and are not his sisters here with us? And then probably the most telling thing in our whole passage, it says, and they took offense at him. Questions are fair. Uh, in my relationship with my wife, my dear wife, she's much better at asking questions. If I need to go to a meeting, it's better if Wanda goes with me um, because uh, I will return home and she'll say, well, you know, they were talking to you about this and that. And I go, yeah, they said this and they said that. And then she'll begin, the questions begin to come. I see some heads nodding, guys. Uh, I think you're with me here on this. And, and, and she goes, well, did you ask them this? And I go, well, no, I, I didn't really think about that. And, well, did you ask them this? And I go, no. I did. And she goes, what, did you ask them anything? And I go, their name? I mean, you know, I, I just, I think questions are good, right? I think questions are helpful. On the screen, you'll, say, you'll see questions are fair. It's the answer that causes the turbulence. Jesus' answer is what causes the problem. He's already claimed in his previous visit to have been Messiah. That's understood. His wisdom now, his wisdom that they, that they heard with their, you know, they heard themselves, and his acts of power that they had heard of confirm his claim. Questions. People, people have questions about Jesus. Sometimes people sincerely say, Danny, did he claim to be God? And I said, absolutely. But Danny, is he the only way to God? And I said, that's what he said, absolutely. Jesus is the only way. But, but what about this group of people here and that group of people there? And I go... I believe in the authority of scriptures, and the scriptures tell me that Jesus is God in the flesh, right? We're coming up upon Christmas, where we remember where he stepped into our world. He initiated our salvation. We couldn't help ourselves. We couldn't pay for our own sins. So God, the second person of the Trinity, steps into our world and becomes a man. And he lives for 30 years. For 30 years, he lives a sinless life. We'll talk a little bit more about him being a carpenter in a moment. But he comes as humble and vulnerable and innocent as a child. Just pause for a moment. He comes into poverty. He, he, he chooses to be raised in a town that was obscure and insignificant. He experiences rejection so that he might identify with us. See, he's not a God that's far away. He's a God who's near. He's a God who lives with us. But then when he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, listen, he chose now, chooses now to live in us, to live with humanity, but now in humanity. This is who Jesus is. 
And when he returns to earth to set up his kingdom, we call it the second coming, they will not, listen, they will not cover his head and pull on his beard and slap him and spit on him. They will bow their knee to him. They will bow their knee to this Jesus. Paul clearly tells us that there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You do so now, willingly, which is right. But everyone, everyone who, who, who mocks him will bow their knee one day to Christ. Verse 2, still, where did he get these things? I want you to hear people who are troubled, probing Jesus' insight into the scriptures. Jesus, we know, did not quote the rabbis of the day. He interpreted the word of God on his own, despite his lack of formal training. The question, they questioned the source of his wisdom. Where did he get this wisdom? We know that he didn't get it in our community. We know that he didn't go to school or to, you know, we, where did he get it from? This is what troubled them. This is what shook them, literally. They couldn't accept that he was God or that he came from God because he didn't fit, again, their expectations. Listen, they knew. That's what their, te- their question tells us. They knew that he had something they didn't have. They had no idea where this knowledge came from. Again, verse 2. How are such mighty works done by his hands? This questions the authority by which Jesus worked miracles. You know, when I think about his hands, my father worked in construction, as did I. Uh, Immediately out of high school, I went into construction. And I remember his hands. I remember hands that were strong. I remember hands that had, you know, from time to time, scars on them. There was, there was a time that he was working for a roofing contractor, and some tar, some of the hot tar got away from him. And I remember for a period of time that his hands bore the marks or the scars of, of being burned. I remember his wedding band. His wedding band was a lot like mine's, uh, white gold. And, but I remembered, I remembered my dad's hands. And... I remember him grabbing me <laughs> because I needed to be grabbed and, and, you know, submitting to his hands. I remember him holding me. I remember, I remember his hands on the steering wheel of his truck or, or working with a shovel. I remember his hands. And they say, how are such mighty works done by his hands? We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. And then there's a bit of scorn in verse 3 where it says, Is is not this the carpenter? Another way to say this is, Is he not just a carpenter? Is he not just a common laborer who works with his hands? Think somebody, carpenters, we think of somebody who works with wood today at the very least. But in Jesus' time, the the word really describes a stonemason. Somebody who would have built, built stones. If you went to Nazareth today, you see a lot of rocks. Um, they use the rocks to build terraces and, 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 and then 
to plant uh, olive groves. They used, they used the rocks to build homes or to build walls. So this is what Jesus would have done in their community. Somebody who fixed farm equipment like wagon wheels or plows would have been brought to Jesus. He would have made furniture. He would have been sunburned from working outside. He would have been strong from cutting down trees. And yes, his hands would have been calloused. As a matter of fact, Jesus was outwardly ordinary. He was ordinary, not special from a human perspective. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says, of Jesus, of Messiah. Listen to these words. It speaks of his humility. This is, he's coming in humility. It says, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Listen to these words. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And going on in verse 3, is he not the son of Mary? Bible scholars believe that it's significant that Joseph is no longer mentioned. Perhaps he passed away or he simply was no longer present. But they also believe that this is an indirect reference to Jesus' birth. Let me tell you what I mean by that. They knew, the community knew nothing of his virgin birth. We're told that Mary hid these things in her heart. They concluded that he was illegitimate. They did the math from the time that Mary and Joseph got married and when Jesus was born. As a matter of fact, the religious leaders say in John 8:41, we were not born of sexual immorality, thinking that there was uh, rumors about Jesus' birth. More, verse 3. And they took offense at him. Offense means that they stumbled. You know, from time to time, uh, actually when we were in Phoenix, uh, my grandson, he's uh, eight, going to be nine in December. His name is Teague. And he likes to be outside. And this is a good time to be outside in Phoenix, Arizona. There's other times you don't really want to be outside. And so I said, hey, buddy, you want to go for a hike? And he's sure. Yeah, he, I mean, he's, he's ready to go. And so... We went up to a, a hike, it's called Lookout Mountain, and, and it's very close to their home, and everybody was back at the house, you know, preparing the, the meal and everything. And, and one of the things on this hike is, is these little rocks were, you know, were kind of jagging out of the, you know, sticking out, and, and it's easy to trip on them. It's easy to stumble. That's what this word means. It means to trip, like tripping on a, a root of a tree when you're walking on a path. The word is skandalizo in the Greek, and it means they were scandalized by Jesus. They were troubled by Jesus. He is the point of their stumbling. New Testament scholar Kenneth Wiest, you'll see his comment on the screen, says they could not explain him. They could not, they could not explain Jesus, so they rejected him. Moving on to verses 4 and 6, we see that Jesus is now amazed. We see his response. 
Verse 4, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor. That idea there is not without respect except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. This obviously is a proverb that Jesus uses, and it reminds us of the saying that familiarity breeds contempt. The familiarity breeds contempt. The the rejection he receives in Nazareth points to his death in Jerusalem. Not only was his community rejecting him, a nation would reject him. Historically, prophets suffered at the hands of the people that they came to save. In John chapter 1, verse 11, it says, And he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jerusalem, David's, David, King David's capital, where his descendants would reign, and Jesus would, was one of his descendants, was where the son of David would die. Verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there except that he lay his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marvels because of their unbelief. And he went out among among the villages teaching. So now, in conclusion or wrapping up, a couple of thoughts. These words to me are sobering. God in the flesh, anointed in a very unique way by the power of the Holy Spirit, comes out of the water with the declaration that this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Immediately he's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil for 40 days. Fasting and tempted by the devil, he he leaves the wilderness victorious. Then he comes to the north, and he begins to minister to the people. He selects some men to be his followers, his his students, and they're with him. And he spends all of his time ministering to the people, meeting their needs. We've said this before, teaching them the gospel, bringing the kingdom, healing people, delivering them from demons, and making the way of God open the kingdom of God opened to anyone who would follow him. And in verse 5 we read, and he could do no mighty work there. God in the flesh could do no mighty work in his own hometown. For a moment, I just want you to remember, if you've been here with us on Wednesday nights, I just want you to remember the crowds in Capernaum. I want you to remember that at at different junctures of his time in Capernaum, as soon as the people found out that he was there, they flood into the city. They flood into the village. They flood into the town looking for Jesus. And And when he emerges and when he is publicly available, they press in upon him. Picture that in your mind. Now, contrast is helpful here. I want you to press, pause, and recall the people of the Decapolis telling Jesus to leave. In Capernaum, the people people were like a a torrent of humanity pressing in upon him. You go to the Decapolis, where the ten Greek cities are, and they're telling him once he delivers an individual from, from demonic oppression, the people come, see the man in his right mind, and they tell him, we want you to leave. 
Think about this. Think about this just for a minute. Some surround him. Some reject him. Not done yet. I want you to think, too, about the woman who bled for 12 years. Remember, she was ritually, ceremonially unclean for 12 years. She saw Jesus differently than the people of Nazareth, or the people of the Decapolis, for that matter. Her faith spoke to her trust in him when she said to herself, nobody else, if I, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. In Nazareth, unbelief in some capacity restricts Jesus' power. Now, I've had conversations about this with some people. That's really all that they are. Some are saying, well, Danny, it's not that their unbelief kept him from doing miracles. It's that their unbelief kept them from bringing people to Jesus. And that, that may very well be the case. Others believe that, no, in some way, his capacity was limited. But then in verse 5, I want you to consider his mercy. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I want you to see... I want you to see his compassion on the sick. Even though he's been rejected, even though he knows he's leaving Nazareth, he still has the heart to minister to a few sick people. On the screen you'll see a statement, those who thought they knew Jesus missed him. They made a massive miscalculation. So in closing, Jesus' response to Nazareth is, and he marveled or was amazed. That is, he was saddened and surprised by the stubbornness of their hard hearts. But he didn't stop ministering. Do you see that? He didn't stop caring. He didn't stop doing what he came to do. He continued to teach in the surrounding villages. Keep in mind that Jesus marveled at the unbelief of his own hometown. But in Luke chapter 7, verse 9, listen to these words because he marvels at the faith of a Roman centurion, yes, a Gentile. In Luke chapter 7, it says, And when Jesus heard this, that is the words of the Roman centurion regarding trusting in Jesus' authority. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Sometimes I encounter people who are students or people and come for counseling or to talk, and, and I'm impressed by their faith. First, it takes faith to make an appointment with this grumpy old man and come and speak to him at the church. And they come and they sit down and they open their hearts and they ask, will you pray? And yes, certainly we'll pray. And do you have any ideas? And yeah, well, the Bible says this and, you know, all the mistakes I've made in my life, tell me this. And, but then I tell them, I am impressed with your faith. And they say, but I don't have faith. Because in their minds they think, Danny, if I had faith, I wouldn't have problems. And that's not true. Think about this. Those of you who are sitting here, I don't know you. You know I ordered tamales today. I know nothing about your day. 
But just stop and think about this. You have great faith. You have trusted in Jesus Christ to forgive you your sins. And you are forgiven. You have trusted in Christ to forgive you your sins. And you are forgiven. And that, my friends, is great mountain-moving faith. How can you say that, Danny? Because it impacts your eternity. You are eternally secure in Christ Jesus. He will present you to the Father holy and blameless, without blemish, because you trusted in him. My friends, you have great faith. We learn from the city, the community of Nazareth, that they rejected him, but we have so many examples over and over again of very, very common people who trust in an extremely uncommon Savior. Let's pray. So, Father, this evening we thank you for this story. We turn the corner in some ways in, in our year, Lord, as we move towards Christmas, New Year. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters as they leave here tonight. We're going to worship together, but as they leave here tonight, I want them just to think about they have placed their faith, their trust in you. They have received you. They haven't rejected you. And eternity, eternity, which is beyond our understanding, eternity speaks to them now of the greatness of their faith and the greatness of their Savior and the greatness of their future. And for that, Lord God, we worship you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.